0: Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. It's in your bulletin, or you can see it in context on page 925 of the Bible in your row. And if you need a Bible that you will read, that's what those Bibles are there for, uh, to show you that we don't uh, cherry-pick things out of the Bible, but we put them in context. And if you need something uh, to see that context, that is there uh, for you. Uh, in fact, we're going through a series in the book of Colossians this summer. We're going to preach through every verse uh, to take this entire letter. Uh, and we're today at the second part of chapter 1 uh, of Paul's letter to this ancient church that, is, that was in uh, modern Turkey. Here now, Colossians 1, chapter, verses 15 through 23. This is God's word, eternally true. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul... Became a minister. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, give us light that we might see light. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. You, you who are our light, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, My question for you this morning is Do you like my shoes? Do you like my shoes? I've gotten a couple of comments in the last uh, few weeks about my shoes and how they either uh, do or do not go with the, the rest of my Outfit, and I'll just tell you the story. Um, I had some I had some black shoes that kind of go with the robe. They're a little more they were a little more dressy and kind of like that. Uh, but as I stand up for a long time on Sunday mornings, between you know, in church planting, church planting is all about walking and being on your feet. You're on your feet carrying the gospel. You're on your feet gathering people. You're on your feet uh, setting up sound system and chairs and tables and things like that. And I noticed a couple of weeks ago that uh, that as my dress shoes started to give out, um, that my back started to hurt more. And I thought. Do I have another pair of shoes that is good for a long walk? And these particular shoes I wear whenever I go to the Monticello Trail, which is my favorite place to walk, to walk and think, to walk and pray, to walk and just be completely quiet. And so I've I've been wearing them. And I thought in this book of Colossians, there these are actually the appropriate shoes to wear. Because I would say that in the world today, we're calling this series uh, Walk in a Manner Worthy which Paul says in this letter to the Colossians. And I would say that in the world today, there people are looking at the church and wondering, wondering if the church of Jesus Christ will walk in a manner worthy of him. And so as we're doing that, the, my shoes on my feet with my robe this morning help, me, help remind me that we need to walk in a manner worthy Uh, You know, the question that we often ask ourselves is, we're talking the talk, but are we walking the walk? And how would we know? In the church, I said last week, uh, the answer is usually centered on two words, discipleship and community. If we're doing discipleship and we're doing community, then that's how we know. And while those are correct answers, the words discipleship and community aren't self-referencing. And there are many, many interpretations of what those words mean. And you can also go to almost any church website and find some word about discipleship and some word about community. So we need to look at Colossians and see. See how Paul defines these things. See what, Paul, what words Paul uses to encourage us on in order to walk in a manner worthy. Last week we saw that Paul hears about the Colossians and as a result, it moves him to pray in a particular way that they would be filled up to walk in a manner worthy. This week, Paul is pointing the Colossians to the one who is worthy. Jesus, if we're looking, about, if we're looking at definitions of discipleship and community, is the center. Jesus is the center of all things including Christian discipleship and community. And ultimately, we want to walk in a manner worthy of him. So this morning, we're going to ask, who is Jesus? And we'll see Paul's three answers. Today, he'll say that Jesus is first in creation. Jesus is first in reconciliation. And Jesus is first in presentation. First in creation, first in reconciliation, and first in presentation. So in verses 15 through 17, first in creation... You can watch sports images on TV, or you can go out and play a sport. Which one makes you an athlete? The true form of athleticism comes from playing the game, not just watching images of it on TV. So we could be confused by verse 15 when it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. To our ears, that could make Jesus seem like less, if he's just an image, like we just watch the images of sports. But the Greek idea surrounding this word, the word in the original is icon, uh, the Greek idea behind it is true form. For example, the same word is used in Hebrews 10, chapter 1. It uses this word when it says that the law was a shadow, but it was not the true form, it was not the icon, it was not the image of these realities. So an image in this form, this icon, is the opposite of the computer. On the computer, you click on the not real thing to have it open up to the real program. What this is saying is that Jesus is the real thing. The icon in this sense is the real thing. Jesus isn't a weak copy of God. That's not what an image is. No, Jesus is the true form. He is the reality. He says of himself, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. It also says in this uh, same verse that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, is that a sentence about when he was born? That he was born first? Or is it about his status as firstborn? As in, the firstborn receives the largest inheritance. Here, it's about status. Jesus is first in status. In the Gospel of John, what does he say? Before Abraham was... I am. Could it be about his birth order? No, because then he would be firstborn out of creation, which is the error of Jehovah's Witnesses and other uh, Arian cults. Making Christ—that would be making Christ God's first creation, first act of creation—and not His Son, His eternal Son, the eternal Second Person of the Trinity. The rest of verse 16 helps us if we keep on reading. All things were created by him, which puts Jesus outside the realm of created things. And at the end of the verse, it also says, all things were created through him and for him. Um, it could also be uh, translated, have been created. So that, along with verse 17, that says that all things hold together in him, gives us two vantage points about Jesus and creation. First, Jesus was there at the first. Before there was a creation, Christ was there. And second, Jesus has been there and continues to be there and has been there ever since. All things were initially created by and through and for Jesus. All things? Yes, all things. Paul lists them out with four merisms. Uh, A merism is an all-encompassing pair. Things in heaven and things on earth. And everything in between those poles. Things seen and things unseen. And everything in between. Individual thrones or entire political systems and everything in between. Individual rulers, or all-encompassing authoritative power groups. Each pole and everything in between. That's a merism. That's all things. Heaven and on earth, seen and unseen. And verse 17 foot-stomps it again by saying that Christ is before all things. Now I say all things... And someone is thinking, "Did he create the bad things too, then?" Now Proverbs 16:4 says, "The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble." But remember two things. First, the bad things are parasites on the good. Adultery is a parasite on marriage. Lying is a parasite on truth. A bad thing cannot exist in and of itself. It must pervert a good thing. And second, just remember that you've probably never met a wicked person who says, gosh, I'm really bothered that God made me wicked. I wish I could be something else. I think the quintessential biblical example of this is the Pharaoh in in Egypt, in Exodus. God said he created Pharaoh and Pharaoh himself freely denied it. He said, who is God? God said he raised Pharaoh for his glory and Pharaoh denied it. So God created all things, but the evil things are parasites on the good ever since the first temptation. So Jesus is first over all creation in status. They're initially, they're continually the firstborn inheritor of all things and the one who sustains all things. He literally causes them to stand together. So what should we do with that? I wonder how many of you have seen the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. It's an older movie. Uh, and in it, uh, what happens is that Bill Murray on Groundhog Day finds out that he can't die. Or he finds out that if he dies, that the next morning he wakes up and it's the same day. It's Groundhog Day all over again. And no matter what he does, when he goes to bed at night or if he dies that day, he wakes up again the next morning and it's Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day held all things for him. It was the sum of his uh, life. So what do you think he did after he kept experiencing the same day over and over and over again and realized that he couldn't die, but the same things happened every day? I'll tell you. In the movie, he eventually started facing his fears. He started, he started uh, by being kind of a uh, not, not nice guy. Um, and part of that was because there were, you know, he had problems in his life. Uh, but he started, he started facing his fears. He started having conversations he hadn't had, but he knew he needed to. He started helping people that he hadn't helped. And since it's a romantic comedy, he finally asked the girl out. Um, and he did it out of kindness rather than out of selfishness. The question is what fears would you face if, In Jesus Christ, you knew that you had a Groundhog Day relationship with eternal death. This is what I mean. All things stand together in Christ. All things. So how many times a day do you think or say to yourself, Oh, it would kill me to do that. Oh, it would kill me to try that. Yet you know it's the right thing to do. Here's the truth. All things stand together in Him, and that includes you. So what fears do you need to face in Him, knowing that eternal death cannot harm you? Is it something in heaven, like believing you have an eternal hope, therefore you can pray with boldness? Or is your fear something on earth, like facing your fear of personal finance? Do you need to face a fear you can see? A date that's on your calendar circled in red? Is it a friend you need to talk to honestly, either about repentance or forgiveness? Or do you have an unseen fear, an anxiety that cripples you, but you're too embarrassed or afraid to seek help? In Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, things seen, things unseen, they cannot harm you all things stand together in him. So if there are thrones or rulers or authorities you need to face, be it a boss, a parent, an agency, all those things hold together in him. And so do you. And even death cannot harm you. So where will you step up and step out, knowing that he is first over all creation? Christ is first in creation. Paul goes on to tell us he's also first in reconciliation in verses 18 through 20. The Bible often speaks of the death and resurrection of Jesus in that order. Death and then resurrection. But here in verses 18 and 20, uh, the order gets reversed. Resurrection, then death. In verse 18, he's the firstborn of the dead. That's resurrection. And in verse 20, he makes peace by the blood of his cross, which is death. Now, we'll see the significance of that in a minute. The very first thing verse 18 says is that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning or the ruler. He is the first, first principle. But he is no mere principle. He is the firstborn from the dead. And this time we're looking at both time and status. Resurrection happened to Jesus first. And he is the king of all those resurrected in him so that he might be first or preeminent in all things. How did that happen? Verse 19 tells us. Because all God's fullness was pleased to dwell in him. Above, in verse 15, we had the beloved son as the true image or icon of God. And here again, we have Jesus as the fullness of God, what we're saying is there is nothing about God missing from Jesus Christ. Last week, I said we get several groups of three in the book of Colossians, right? First in creation, first from the dead, first in all things. Those are a group of three. And now in verses 19 through 20 comes the refrain, in him, through him, and to him. And that same group of three is above in verse 16. Uh, Uh, in him or by him, you can translate it either way, in him, through him, and to him. And then it repeats this merism from before, whether things in heaven or things on earth. And remember, all things means all things. So here's the significance of the order, resurrection, and death that I spoke about just a minute ago. This passage, this part right here, can be applied to the church. And it must be applied to the church. Jesus is the head of his body, which is the church. But notice how it's all pronouns in here, he, he, he. And notice how you can substitute some of those pronouns of he, he, he with it, it, it. Meaning the church. The church is the beginning. It's the beginning of a new community. It is the body of the firstborn from the dead. For we are resurrected in Christ. And the church exists so that in all things, Christ might be preeminent. Because in the church, the fullness of the Godhead has chosen to dwell in and among his people. And through the church, to reconcile all things for Jesus, doing the work of peacemaking through the blood of his cross, whether things in heaven or things on earth. How's that for a church mission statement? The body is made to follow the head. And if Christ is the head of all things and the church is his body, his body follows in being the head of all things. The beginning, the firstborn bringing preeminence to Christ, the fullness of the Godhead in and among us, and doing the work of reconciliation through the peace of Jesus' blood shed on the cross. If Christ dwells in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit, then Christ's church is a reconciling force, not a force to be reckoned with. The church is a peacemaking force, not a force of false peace. The church, through Jesus' blood, reconciles and makes peace on earth and in heaven. What did Jesus tell Peter in Matthew 16, 19? He said, I give you the keys to the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What a picture of how the church should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So how? How does the body follow the head? How are we first in reconciliation the way that Jesus is? First, notice the goal. The church exists so that in all things Jesus Christ is preeminent. And notice the path. Jesus is preeminent when his church is reconciling all things in him. And notice how. Peacemaking through the blood of his cross. When the church points the world toward Jesus through peacemaking founded in Christ's death then Jesus becomes preeminent. That's how the body follows the head, through the goal, the path, and the how. Christ preeminent, the church reconciling through his blood. But I'll say, sometimes the church acts as though Christ will be preeminent when the church shouts louder than all the other voices. Or sometimes the church acts as though Christ will be preeminent if we win the attention of a strong political candidate sympathetic to our cause. But how does Paul describe it? How does Paul describe the gospel in another one of his letters? He says that the gospel is shoes. And why shoes? Because shoes mean you're ready. You're ready to walk. And what kind of shoes? What is this readiness for? The shoes of the gospel, the readiness of the gospel of peace. Peace. Our... Shoes should be fit with readiness of peace in the gospel. In other words, if Christ is to be preeminent in all things, and part of that involves the reconciling work of the church, then the church ought to have a readiness for peacemaking. But it's not just any kind of peacemaking. It's peacemaking through Christ's blood, the one in whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created. The very God of very God came to earth in the frailty of human flesh, And after loving the weakest among us, he died an unjust death at the hands of his enemies. His blood was poured out so that we could be purified and have peace with God. And then so that we could have peace with our enemies as well. So the question is, where are you loving the weakest? Where are you seeking peace with your enemies? And now, church, who will invite you into that peace? Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, was invited to meet Konrad Adenauer in the 40s, the elder statesman of West Germany after World War II. Konrad Adenauer led his country to peace after war and Holocaust. And how did he lead them to peace? Billy Graham said, when I walked in, I expected to meet a tall, stiff, formal man who might even be embarrassed if I brought up the subject of religion. After the greeting, the chancellor suddenly turned to me and said, Mr. Graham, what is the most important thing in the world? Before I could answer, he answered his own question. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is alive, then there's hope for the world. This is post-World War II Germany. The Christ who is first in creation and first in reconciliation is also the first in presentation in verses 21 and 23. What do I mean about presentation other than the fact that it makes the third point rhyme? Only this. The object of reconciliation is presentation. Presentation before God's throne. Paul has a flair for what to us seem like run-on sentences. So to simplify verses 21 through 23, we could say, Y'all, he reconciled. To present y'all, if y'all continue in faith and hope of the gospel, the object of reconciliation is presentation. First, in verse 21, he says something true about us. Y'all were separated, alienated. How? Through a mindset, a mindset of enmity that came through evil works. And then verse 22 begins with a hinge and the door swings open. But now. Praise the Lord for the hinges throughout Scripture. But now. Now he reconciled you all through his body of flesh through death. The door has swung open. On the outside of the door was alienation from God, and on the inside is reconciliation, peace, and fellowship with God. The door itself is Christ. As he said in John chapter 10, he said, I am the door. I am the door. His body of flesh, by his death, we enter that peace. But Jesus is not only the door. Jesus is also the host. And as the host, he presents you to the guest of honor, God the Father. And how does he present you? Holy, spotless, blameless. Now, who wouldn't want that? The problem often comes on one of two sides, though. Some hear how Christ presents us holy, spotless, and blameless, and say, Who are you to tell me that I'm not already holy, spotless, or blameless? I don't need that. Don't label me. Don't judge me. Others hear how Christ presents us as holy, spotless, and blameless, and say, That's impossible. That's impossible. That could never be true of me. Actually, they usually say something like, I'm too far gone. The church would fall down if I even walked in the door. So I'll tell you, on the one hand, we either have too much self-loving, right? When we say, who are you to tell me? Or we have too much self-loathing. Oh, he could never save me. In your own moments of doubt, which one do you tend toward? Whichever one it is, this is what Paul means by the phrase alienated, hostile in mind. Both self-loving and self-loathing are the mindset of enmity. The self-loving person says things like, how dare you? I deserve this. I only want my fair share. I have rights. The self-loathing person says things like, but I'm so blank. He can do it for you, but he, he can't do it for me. Or they're always asking, but what about this thing about me? Or what about that thing about me? The question is, what can wake us up? What can wake us up from our self-loving or wake us up from our self-loathing? When I'm stuck in a place of demanding my rights, I see that the creator of all things gave up his rights to come and walk among the least of us. And when I'm tempted to self-loathing, I see that the man who became weak, Was exalted to the head of the body, the church, and that all things are subject to him. Self loving requires his death, self loathing requires his resurrection. His body of death is the door that swings me from alienation to reconciliation and ultimately a restoration of fellowship with God and with others. This is the hope we have, and it's in this hope that we should remain holy, spotless, and blameless. That's how Christ presents us. Let's be humble enough to receive it. Let's be grateful enough to seek it. The enmity mindset, like all evil, is a parasite. So it is with self-loving and self-loathing. At the bottom of self-loving is a person crying out to be celebrated. At the bottom of self-loathing is a person longing to be loved. But who will place us in that position? I'll tell you who. The one who put the stars in place. Your creator. The one in whom all things now stand together. In verse 22, it says he will present you, or more literally, he will stand you up or exhibit you as holy, spotless, and blameless. The most celebrated and cherished diamond in the world is the Hope Diamond, housed at the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian. In Christ, you are the Hope Diamond, His body of death is the door that you walk through in order to be exhibited like that diamond, sacred, spotless, blameless for all to see. The last thing Paul tells us is to remain in the faith of Christ with this hope, firm as the ground underneath your feet. Don't shift from that hope, don't shift that foundation. Earlier in the chapter, Paul had heard of this church and he was moved to pray for them that they would be filled up to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And now he's reminded them that they're reconciled in order to be presented spotless and blameless as they remained in that hope. Let us remain in that hope. The school system in a large city had a program to help children keep up with their schoolwork during stays in the city's hospitals. One day, a teacher who was assigned to the program received a routine call asking her to visit a particular child. She took the child's name, the child's room number, and talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. She said to the teacher, we're studying nouns and adverbs in the class now, and I would be grateful if you could help him understand nouns and adverbs so he doesn't fall too far behind while he's staying in the hospital. So the hospital program teacher went to see the boy that afternoon. No one had mentioned to her that the boy had been very badly burned and was in great pain. The teacher walked in and she was very upset at the sight of him. Uh, and she stammered as she, you know, worked out the words, I've, I've been sent by your school to, to help you with nouns and adverbs. And when she left that day, she felt like she pretty much had not helped him at all. But the next day, when the teacher came back, a nurse caught her in the hallway and asked her, what did you do to that boy? The teacher felt she must have done something wrong, and she began to apologize. No, 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 said the nurse. You don't know what I mean. We've been worried about this little boy. We've been worried that he was in the fight for his life, but ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back. He's responding to treatment. It's as though he's decided to live. The boy made a full recovery, and two weeks later, the boy explained that he had completely given up on hope until that teacher had arrived. Everything changed when he came to this simple realization. He expressed it this way. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? You see, Christ has been sent to you, not for nouns and verbs but to present you before the face of God, holy, spotless, and blameless. And the creator wouldn't come if he couldn't accomplish that work in you. And that's the hope. We're called to remain in the hope of that gospel. We're called to remain in Jesus, the creator. We're called to remain in Jesus, the reconciler. Christ fills his church and makes it a reconciling body, a peacemaking body. Will you, like Paul, become a servant of that body in the hope of Christ's gospel? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we get caught between self-loving and self-loathing. We get caught in moments of despair rather than hope. But we see you first in creation, first in reconciliation, and we trust that you will present us holy, spotless, and blameless. At your feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, oh, make us more and more into your bride. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.